Beautiful day today here in mid-Michigan. My wife and I in December celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary. This is a picture of us on our wedding. Thank you. That's right. It's just time is passing. Thank you for applauding that. This is us right there. That's the day we got married uh, in this really beautiful church. This uh, other picture is us over 30 years later in front of the same church. There we are right there. Almost nothing has changed. Uh, It feels like the same photo, really. Very fortunate, by the way, to be married to a person uh, with such a steadfast faith in Jesus. If you notice in the first picture, the um, veil that um, Laura uh, wore on her wedding day, this is the actual veil that she wore right here. Now, the fact that we still own this veil is a a totally different sermon. Um, We'll talk about that another time, another story altogether. Uh, But 30 years ago, virtually every wedding that I went to, the bride would walk down the aisle with the veil covering her face. And um, now, I haven't been to a wedding like that, had that in a long time. Most people get married in barns and stuff now and everything, it's different the way they do it. But, um, and then when she reached the front of the chapel, in Laura's case, the, her dad actually took the veil and pulled it over the back of her, uncovered, brought her beautiful smile over to the minister, and that was the, kind of the beginning of the marriage process. A veil is symbolic. It represents limited access, uh, the idea being there's someone or something behind the veil that you cannot see or do not have access to or cannot see fully or do not have full access to, and then when the veil is removed, it shows a new level of, of connection or intimacy can be attained. Think about when they like unveil a statue or like a new restaurant, you know, like with statues, they have that giant sheet covering the statue and the crowd gathers, and then when the sheet is pulled, everybody can see and enjoy what they previously could not see and enjoy. Same idea at a wedding ceremony, this veil being pulled back symbolizes that transition from engagement to the new level of intimacy that will occur in marriage. By the way, in some communities, when the veil is removed from the bride's face, it's the very first time that the groom is ever seeing her face. Think about that, let that sink in for a moment, the whole new level of like, like if you're like, what, what's gonna happen here? It's like, yes, or I don't know. So there are significant veils in the Bible. Um, in the book of Exodus, God instructed the Jews to build a tabernacle for him. It's, it think, when you hear tabernacle, think like it's sort of like a mobile home for God in the desert, okay? The whole thing was made of curtains and poles and clasps, and it could easily be assembled and then taken down each day because they were moving around each day. But then there were specific instructions. Um, in the Hebrew, this word is paroketh, um, which is uh, a sacred screen or a veil that, that they had in, in this tabernacle. In Exodus 26, it says, you are to make a curtain, that's that word paraketh, a, a sacred screen of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, finely spun linen with a design of cherubim worked into it, 
Hang it on four gold-plated uh, pillars of acacia wood that have gold hooks and stand it on four silver bases. Hang the veil under the clasps and bring the Ark of the Testimony there behind it, okay? That's the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe you've heard of that. That's where God lived or his glory was present on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant so that the veil will make a separation between, uh, for you between the holy place and the most holy place. And so it's this limited access idea, right? Um, only Aaron was able to go behind the veil into the most holy place as the priestly intermediary on behalf of the people of God. 500 years later, Solomon was commissioned to build a permanent temple, uh, which you can see a, a diagram of there, um, as, as the dwelling house of God. So he went from mobile home to permanent home, right? And there was a permanent veil that separated, again, the Holy of Holies from the rest of uh, the, the, the structure there. And that's where, where God's presence was. And only the high priest uh, was able to go behind the veil, and only once a year on Yom Kippur uh, would that happen. Now, there's a lot that's been written about the temple veil. Um, tradition says it was four inches thick, and so that's like almost as, <laughs> I mean, that's a thick uh, curtain. And that one time a year that when the high priest would go in, the tradition in the Jewish culture is they would actually tie a gold rope around his leg in case he died from being in God's presence so they could retrieve his body. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, if you read Josephus, there's a bunch of details like the symbolism of all the colors and everything. It's really interesting. The Bible doesn't say as much. I could actually only find one verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Um, the Holy of Holies is described in elaborate detail was overlaid with 45,000 pounds of fine gold. There were cherubim that had a combined wingspan of 30 feet. There were two 27-foot high pillars with carvings of pomegranates, and it's all this elaborate description. And then there's this one verse about the veil in 2 Chronicles 3.14. It says, he, that Solomon, made the curtain of blue purple and crimson and uh, yarn and fine linen, and he wove cherubim into it. It's not any more detail. Same carryover from the veil that was in the tabernacle. Now, why did they have this veil? Why limited access to God? Well, simply put, it was terrifying for any human being to be in the presence of God's glory. Glory is you think of glory, think about a powerful magnificence, right? It's this immense beauty, this incredible honor, this sense that you're in the presence of something much larger, much better, much bigger than you are. That's God is just dripping with glory, right? Now, if you're old school, you might remember um, the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark um, when they found the lost Ark of the Covenant. Some of you are like, I remember that scene. Um, that they, the, the premise of the movie is they found the Ark of the Covenant that used to sit in the Holy of Holies, and it was going to be this powerful thing. And when it was opened, uh, this was back when, um, when Harrison Ford was on a pretty sweet run. He did all the Star Wars, and then the Raiders, he was the man at the time. So he was Indiana Jones, and in the movie, he told Marion, whatever you do, don't look at it. Remember that? And they're like tied to the post. You guys have seen this movie? And of course, if you saw the movie, when the ark gets open, 
and the glory of God pours out, the guys who did look at it, all their faces melted. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that's perfect theology or anything like that, but it's just Harrison Ford. But, but that's the idea here. It's the same idea in the story of Moses. Um, when he returns from Sinai with the law, the Israelites were terrified to look directly at him. So him having been in God's presence, and if you know the story, he only saw God's back, and it, it, but he was more in God's presence than, than uh, the other people. And here's what it says in Exodus 34, as Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. So it's not because Moses was into essential oils or anything like that. It's because he had been with God. There was this glow, literally this, this, um, this shine on his face. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone, they were afraid to come near him. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil. So Moses would wear this veil over his face whenever he was around the people, and then whenever Moses went back before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And that's the, the story that brings us, you heard Macy read about that um, here in 2 Corinthians 3. If you were here last week, Hezekiah walked us through the first part of chapter 3. He was sharing about kind of the confidence and the competence that we have in Christ as ministers of the Holy Spirit. And this week in the second part of chapter three, Paul expands on this idea, and he actually uses the glory, right, this magnificence of God that was experienced by the Israelites in the time of Moses as his illustrations, kind of his jumping off point. That's the big idea of this section is glory. And here's Paul's argument, okay? He basically says, if the ministry of the law, remember Moses was carrying the tablets when he came down off the mountain, if that ministry of the law that was brought through Moses was considered glorious, how much more glorious and transformational is the ministry of the Holy Spirit that was brought through Jesus Christ, God's own son? And then because that's true, Paul gives us some, some action steps that go along with that that we're gonna talk about. It's a little bit of a thick passage, but we'll, we'll make our way through here. So 2 Corinthians chapter three in verse seven starts with this. It says, now if the ministry, he's talking about the ministry of the law that brought death chiseled in letters on stones, if that ministry came with glory so that the Israelites were not even able to gaze steadily at Moses' face because of its glory, which was set aside. How or how much more will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry that brought condemnation, the ministry of the law, had glory, the ministry that brings righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was set aside was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. So Paul uses this Jewish teaching technique here called a Calvahomer. And Calvahomer just means light and heavy. A Calvahomer is simply a comparison of something good with something 
better, okay? And the idea, it's kind of like, if you think that was good, you should wait till you see this. You know, it's kind of that kind of a thing. And Paul uses it three times in this little section. And each time he's comparing the glory of the ministry of the law to the even more glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? So, what's the ministry of the law? Bible study, study tool says, the law is God's perfect standard of obedience and holiness as described in the commands, statutes, and ordinances given to those who would worship and serve him. The ministry of the law was part of God's sovereign plan to save the world. In Galatians 3.19, Paul says the law was put into effect by angels. So this was a good thing that God gave the law to his people so that they could have a standard of obedience and holiness to aim for as they live their lives, to understand what it meant to be uh, following God. Um, and so if you obeyed the law, it produced holiness and righteousness for the people who obeyed. But it was also a good thing because it was a mirror, if you heard Macy talk about this mirror, that reflected their sin back to them when they did not. You notice in the passage, Paul said, this was a ministry that brought death and condemnation. And it's not because the law was bad, but because part of what the law accomplishes is it reveals our sinful nature and our need for God to save us, okay? And so these commands, these statutes, these ordinances sort of reflect our lives back to us. When we read the law, we can see this is where I'm obeying God and following his way, and this is where I'm not. Does that make sense? Okay? And so Paul says the ministry of the law, which was chiseled onto stones, you guys remember the tablets, it came with such glory that the Israelites, not only could they not look at God's face, they couldn't even look at Moses' face after he had been in God's presence, right? So that's why Moses wore the veil, all right? Paul then says that ministry of the law has since been set aside in favor of an even more glorious, a ministry that brings righteousness, one that endures, he calls it the ministry of the Spirit. That was brought forth by the, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 3, Paul says, the law then was our tutor until Christ, so that we could then be justified by faith. In other words, we had the law to teach us, to show us, to train us, until such a time as the Messiah came, Jesus Christ, and, and, and then everything changed. And here's how. Jesus, who is the lawgiver, right, kept the law perfectly for us. All the statutes, the ordinances, and the commands, and that's something we could never do on our own. He then paid the penalty that we deserve for not being able to keep the law, the penalty of death by dying himself for our sin on the cross, and then he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of and to minister to every person who turns to the Lord, all right? If you think about the implications of that, that is just a massive game changer, right? That's, there's a reason why Paul says that ministry, the ministry of the Spirit, uh, overflows with even more glory, all right? And here's why. There used to be a need for an intermediary, right? Whether it be Aaron 
or Moses or the high priest that would go behind the veil to access God on behalf of God's people. Now, and I think this is an interesting uh, truth that's, that's uh, unfolded, the great bridegroom Jesus has become our intermediary. He has lifted the veil and sent his spirit out to dwell intimately with his bride. The bride of Jesus Christ is the church of his saints. And, and here's how God did it. This is in Matthew uh, chapter 27, verse 50. It, it says, Jesus, this is Jesus on the cross, cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain, the veil, the, the, the sacred screen of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, a lot of the Jewish scholars, they like to make a, a big deal out of the fact that the, 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 the veil that had once separated God's people from God's presence was ripped, this is a four foot wide curtain, miraculously, from the top, which means only God could have been the one I don't know if that's, that's just, I found that to be interesting as I was reading. Um, but suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. Verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, this is a Roman guard and, and, and these Roman leaders, when who, they, they were keeping watch over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly, this man is the son of God. And so you talk about glorious, right? This is the majestic holiness of God on display. The earth is shaking literally, right? The stones are splitting, and this four-inch wide temple curtain rips in two, miraculously, and the Roman guards confess humbly. And then, 50 days later, the Holy Spirit came powerfully. And it's important to note, I'm going to read this passage from Acts chapter 2 about when and how that happened. This happened uh, on, uh, it says, on the day of the Pentecost, which meant there were hundreds of thousands of Jews in Jerusalem to celebrate the wheat harvest, they'd all gathered at the temple because that was God's house. They were waiting outside. They knew God lives in here. His presence was uniquely manifest in here. His glory was present in the Holy of Holies. We're waiting out here. We're praising him. We're thanking him. And that's kind of the setting. And this is what Luke describes. It says, when the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And again, the majestic holiness, the glory of God on display, we've got violent rushing winds and flames. Can you imagine that if that happened in here right now, we would remember that. If this flame like shot out 
and then like separated and was like landing on one on each of us, we would, we would talk about that the next day for a little bit. We, we, people would get their phones out, you know, and like, look at that. That's incredible. And God in all his glory changes his address. He's now gone from mobile home living to his dream home, right? Solomon's temple. And now he leaves his home in the temple. Now that the veil is gone, we think that the veil got ripped so that we could go in, which we're gonna talk about here in a moment, but it also meant that he could come out. God's people, where does God live now? Here. God's people are God's house. That's the ministry of the Spirit that Paul is referring to, to there. With the veil being torn, access has been granted, right? You can't get more intimate with God than him living inside of you, his spirit present within you, right? What a glorious hope that we have in Christ. Now, um, what do we do with that hope? Paul tells us three things. He tells us one thing we we can do one thing to remember and one thing to be thankful for. All right, let's look at those three. Uh, the one thing to do, this is back to our passage here in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 12. He says, since then we have such a great hope, we act with great boldness. We act with great boldness. Now, what does that mean? Um, there's a lot of opinions, if you read the commentaries, about uh, hope-driven boldness and what that means. Some of, uh, of the, the articles I read talked about having great boldness and telling others about the hope you have in Jesus. Others talk about not living in fear, right? We're, we're in a culture right now that's fraught with anxiety and fear and, 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 and shame, and, and all those are kind of just a part of the fabric of our lives these days. And, and uh, the, some of the scholars talk about finding your motivation and your strength and courage through hope in Jesus to push past the, some of those uh, anxious and shameful and, and fearful tendencies that we have. Live boldly for him. And I think those are both very possible, good translations, ways to apply Paul's exhortation. I'm gonna suggest one more. This is from the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter four. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we have such a great high priest, right? We don't need Moses or Aaron or a high priest to step in on our behalf because Jesus has become our high priest, right? Since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that's Jesus the Son of God, he says, let us hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Therefore, here's the, here's the thing to do, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So for Laura and I, when we, um, the wedding day, you know, was great. Um, the veil, you know, was lifted. You may kiss the bride. Hey, Mr. and Mrs. Granger, woo, yay. And then the photos, the reception, the re uh, dancing, 
there was dancing. I don't do any dancing, but there was cake. And once it was all over, actually, um, that night, I got on a plane, and I flew over. I was gone for about 18 months. I went over to Europe and just kind of did this journey, this tour. We didn't see each other for roughly. I just sent her a couple of postcards. And none of you are buying that, right? Because that's not what happened at all. Um, not even for one second would I have, no. We got married so that we could be together, right? We flew to California together, the two of us, and spent two weeks there together. And then we came home and we lived in our apartment together, right? And here's the, the, the thing, folks. The, the veil has been removed. So go be with God. Approach the throne of grace with boldness. Now, it might be understandable that you might have some trepidation. You might have, this is the God of the universe, the creator and Lord of all existence that you have full access to in Jesus Christ. Approach the throne. And you know what you're gonna find there? According to Paul, I'm sorry, according to the writer of Hebrews, you're gonna find a great high priest who has both passed through the heavens, I mean, he is the holiest of holy, and who is able to sympathize with all of our weaknesses and temptation. Whoa. He also says you will find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And guess what else will be true? When you stand in the presence of God, you will be changed. He's not gonna change. He is who he is. He is the I am. When we encounter the living God, transformation happens. We'll talk more about that here in a moment. So, number one, will you approach Jesus Christ this week boldly approach the throne of grace to pursue intimacy with him through his word, through prayer, through gratitude, to be transformed. That's our one thing to do. We act with great boldness. The one thing to remember is there is freedom. Verse 17 says, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now the ministry of the spirit Paul is saying here is, is a ministry of freedom. Now hear me, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Paul is not referring to the American version of freedom, which is I do whatever I wanna do whenever I wanna do it. That's not freedom, that's chaos. That's a self-serving perspective that is not biblical, okay? That's slavery to sin. I always picture us inside of like a literal prison because the Bible talks about slavery to sin or being imprisoned by sin. Imagine, okay, I'm in prison, the gate is locked, and then Jesus comes and he opens the gates and he says, hey, I have paid your penalty. You're free to go. And the gate flies open. And then we walk up the stairs and we soak in the sunlight for a little while. And then for some reason, you know what we do? We turn around, we walk right back down the stairs into the same prison room. Even though we're free, we, we have this, this pull back to the sin that enslaved us in the first place, don't we? 
Even though the door's open and we can leave at any point in time, we, we kind of like it in there, right? Jesus did not die on the cross to free us from sin so that we could turn around and return to the life of slavery to that very same sin. He didn't free us to sin. He freed us from sin. Biblical freedom, it's kind of a counterintuitive, voluntary choice to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. That's what the ministry of the Spirit is. If you read John, the, the Gospel of John, the Spirit guides us into the truth of God's Word so that we can walk in the freedom of obedience to it. In Galatians, Paul describes it this way. Verse five, he says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Instead, serve one another through love. Isn't that the daily choice that we face? What am I gonna do with my freedom today? Am I gonna be self-indulgent or am I gonna serve others with love? That's every day, every moment we face sort of that tension. He says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. The ministry of the law can be summed up with love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, another watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And Paul says, you're gonna be tempted to carry out with your freedom to walk in the flesh, but that's not the way of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means to serve, to love, to forgive. The fruit of the Spirit is not sniping at others, and it's certainly not self-indulgent entitlement. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? It's about how my posture towards others will be like Jesus's posture towards others. And Paul says in Galatians, the law is not against those things. That's the fulfillment of the law. And those who belong to Christ will crucify the flesh with its passions and desires and live out they're calling to be a follower of Jesus. Will you live out the way of Jesus this week? Right? Will you approach the throne of God with boldness? And will you live out the way of Jesus this week? So our one thing to do, we act with great boldness. Our one thing to remember, there is freedom. And our one thing to thank God for is that we are being transformed by him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the last verse in this little section says, we all with unveiled faces, I love that, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. That part really hit me. This is God who, who's doing the transforming. Have you guys seen those, um, those commercials during the Super Bowl, the, the He Gets Us commercials? Have you guys seen those commercials? Lots of chatter about those commercials, um, which in my opinion is a great thing. Uh, when more people are in dialogue about Jesus and, and how we, he relates to us, I think it's awesome. We just saw in Hebrews the passage that says, 
we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. So I think it's fair and accurate to say this, this idea of he gets us in the sense that he knows everything about us and he still loves us. He create, I mean, he knows us more than we even know ourselves, right? I think that's true. I've also seen a lot of people express this opinion that goes something like this. Okay, yes, Jesus gets us, but it's not enough to just say that. That's not the full message people need to hear. I'm sure the people who spent millions of dollars in these commercials, they weren't trying to say everything. They're just, this was what they, the, the part that they started. But here's the argument that, that I like. People need to know that not only does Jesus get us, Jesus gave his life to save us and to change us, to transform us so that we become conformed to his image, right? He understands our weakness, our sin, all that, and doesn't want us to stay in those places. He is there, and it's all him. This is from the Lord who is spirit. That's how Paul ends this section, and really it's the overall series that we're here in 2 Corinthians. The cruciformed life is one that's being transformed by God into the image of Jesus Christ, amen, right? And so that's the challenge today. Since we have such a great hope in Jesus Christ, let's, number one, boldly approach the throne of grace, knowing that our high priest Jesus has both passed through the heavens and sympathizes with our weaknesses. Let's also remember that there is freedom and let's use our freedom to serve others rather than to pursue earthly gain. And in the process, we can be thankful that God will use all of that. He himself is transforming us into his likeness from glory to glory and on the other side of glory, that process will be complete. Let's pray. Lord, we just can't even express our gratitude to you um, for the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That we don't need to go grab a high priest or hide behind the veil or you know, make animal sacrifices or all these other things. Um, that we have full access to you, the Lord and God of the universe, through Jesus, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Help us, Lord, to walk in his way and his way was never self-indulgent. It was always, how can I love and serve and, and, and tell truth to others about uh, my Father God in heaven? Help us to live that way as a community. Um, help us to recognize that we have the opportunity to approach your throne with boldness anytime we want and to take advantage of that. And thank you for transforming us. Maybe we be a community of people, a transformed um, through the power of your spirit, the wisdom of your word. We're just grateful for all of it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.